The margins in hospitality are so tight. The reality is the money that you're earning today is going to pay, obviously, your payroll for that week, but is going to pay suppliers that you have on, say, a four or six week terms. So you're constantly paying behind. So what happens when you suddenly stop and it comes to a screeching halt and all the revenue goes to zero and literally zero within 24 hours? I think then for a lot of businesses, the reality was, do you know what? We actually don't have enough to pay our bills. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Different restaurants meet different needs in different locations. Whether they're the humble local of a small suburb, something a bit finer on the waterfront, or in a business district, restaurants cater to their location and environment. While suburban restaurants have benefited, have benefited from the populace working from home during the pandemic. No corporates and no tourists has made life very difficult for the many operators in the CBD. What does the road ahead look like for the operators reliant on workers and tourists? Michelle Grand Milkovich is the co-owner of Love Fish in Barangaroo. Michelle, how are you? I'm really well, thank you, Huck. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, we're, we're glad that you're here. What's it like at Barangaroo at the moment, an area that's so reliant on tourists and workers? Wow, Barangaroo. Um, it feels really interesting at the moment because the beautiful sunshine is here, the gorgeous weather. Um, so the sun is shining, the water's sparkling, and it feels just for that moment, you know, when you wake up, it feels like everything's as normal. And there are definite moments that um, that the precinct does feel like that. Um, but yes, it's a very different landscape um, this year. Um, that we're facing. It's been six or seven months now of the whole sort of restaurant sector in Australia turned on its head. Uh, how are you feeling at the moment? You've been on such a roller coaster. What's 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 the current situation for the restaurant? Well, look, um, 2020 was always going to be a huge year for us. Um, it's actually the 20th anniversary of us starting our business. Um, it's also our 20th wedding anniversary this year as well. Um, and it's also the 10th birthday um, for Love Fish. So we had a lot planned this year. We had a lot to celebrate. Um, it was certainly supposed to be a year to remember and it's certainly been that, um, unfortunately, I think for other reasons. Um, so there's been a lot to process. Um, in fact, as we speak now, we should be in New York celebrating our anniversary. Um, it only took us 20 years to... Uh, to get the trip organised, and unfortunately, we've had to. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we've had to postpone that, but that's okay. Hopefully, in the next another ten years, we'll um, we'll make it at some point. But goodness, what a year! Um, where do you start, really? Uh, I think when we were forced to close, um, just that. I think. That immediate shock. Um, we were we were travelling along pretty well. We're sort of February. Um, we had an interesting few months. The beginning of December um, had started off really, really strongly, um, and then the bushfires hit, and we had a bit of a blimp in there. So that certainly affected everything. It seemed um, such a huge thing at the time. Um, obviously, apart from personally sympathising with those going through that, but the effect on our business seemed to be so huge, you know, little did we know that it would really be a blimp um, really and what was looming. Um, but we still had a pretty good season and we got through to sort of February and March, which obviously quite ordinarily quite strong months for us. Um, tourism was definitely a little bit down and that was noticeable. In those sort of January, February months, we can go up to almost 40% tourists, which is incredible really. Um, so we, we definitely sort of noticed that it was slightly down, but you know, we were traveling, we were traveling great. We were, everything was, was very positive from a business perspective. Um, the CBD was quite interesting and particularly where we are, cause I, I sort of felt like the COVID thing happened for us really, really fast and really furious. So it sort of happened a few days before, um, it really hit everyone else. Um, I'm, we, I remember the Sunday was a normal trade and then we reopened 
on the Monday, and that was probably about a week before the forced closures of restaurants in general. We opened on that Monday, and I think we dropped, our trade had dropped by 90%. And it was just, Barangaroo was just like a ghost town. Obviously, everyone had just been told not to come to work. Um, and to give those perspective that don't, obviously, are not familiar with the area, um, we're right on um, Sydney Harbour, absolutely beautiful spot, but the main anchor there is three very large commercial towers that house about 25,000 workers. So you can imagine just the general buzz. Um, and obviously there's a lot of eateries, there's a lot of um, opportunities for lunch. Within those towers themselves, they obviously have their own catering as well. So it's not like there's that many people milling around, but just the general buzz and vibe of Barangaroo is very electric. So to to sort of wander around an empty Oh, it was just surreal. It was a bit like Vanilla Sky, to be honest. And um, But we had a really interesting week in that the tourists kept coming and then during the week the tourists that were coming were coming off of the cruise boats. So we started being in a very uncomfortable situation. We had a few from the Ruby Princess. We had some Royal Caribbean docking. So really that week, those four or five days, um, myself and a couple of us, other restaurateurs in the area um, were, you know, really looking at each other and thinking, you know, what do we do? And then it got to the point where it was just becoming uncomfortable um, for our staff. And to be perfectly honest, the business was no longer financially viable at that point regardless. So we really opened that additional week to keep people employed until we could figure out what we were going to do. Um, I was also in contact with my insurance policy saying, right, I need to kick in my... Um, business interruption policy that we have, a very comprehensive policy that we have and said, right, what are our options? How can I pay staff? What do we do? So we were sort of treading water until it got to the point where we had to close. So we decided to close on the Saturday. Um, we, I mean, I mean, what a situation to be in. I think, I think that initial anxiety had to be delayed for us as the owners because we had over 30 staff on the books at that time um, that we had to try and navigate um, a way forward for them. It's very interesting, I think, being in restaurants where it's such a, it's such a reciprocal relationship. You rely... And I mean, and later I can talk about that, that big jump from small suburban restaurant to a larger restaurant where essentially you're relying on other people to run your business for you. Like it's, it's actually physically impossible to do it yourself. You need to, to trust in others and rely on others to have the same vision as you. And, and in turn, you agree to, to look after those people and to provide for those people and to create a family for them at work. I think to then be put in a position where all of a sudden you, you have to sit there and essentially say to them, I can't look after you anymore, not in the way that I have been, um, was a very, very stressful and very distressing position to be put in. So really that first 48 hours was sitting down, as I did individually with 30 staff, going through what their entitlements were, where we were, what we could do. Um, and essentially, even though at that point we didn't know we had JobKeeper, just to give you some idea of the cross-section of our staff, out of the 30-plus staff that we had on the books when we closed, only seven qualified for JobKeeper. So, you know, the most vulnerable in our community and yet the most loyal. I mean, I, there, there's, we didn't actually have one person in our kitchen qualify for JobKeeper, apart from Michael, who's um, co-owner, Um Everyone in there are temporary visa holders, but these are temporary visa holders that have worked with us for what, four or five years. Some of them have come from Roselle, others have been there since our opening day in 2016. So they're very much part of the team, they're very much part of society, they pay taxes, they do everything that everyone else does. They just were in, put in a position where they were really just told to essentially to go home. So we closed up, we after we got through all the staff, we got home and um, I guess then at that point, you know, it started all to sink in. And then I think it was really the beginning of the next week that it then started to happen um, for the whole restaurant industry and it was very much then a scramble. And then I think it was those of us that had already closed, we were very much in a supportive position because we were saying to others, okay, this is what you have to do. Um, and I just think, again, which, you know, we can discuss 
a little bit later when it comes to compliance, the scrambling of, right, what are the legal requirements I now have? What are the legal letters I have to write for staff? You know, what do I do? Where do I go from here? I mean, there was so much to think about um, and so little, I think, clear headspace, I think, to process it all. Well, we can go into the compliance side of things because you you did shut the restaurant and it's not really a location where you could do um, takeaway or home delivery from. Um, How did you manage uh, through that period of time until you were able to open up again? Look, it was a very difficult time, particularly those those, um, first few weeks um, were were very, very difficult very difficult before we knew that there would be some perhaps some support from our landlord, um, job keeper, some government assistance. I think what was such a confronting time for all restaurants before some obviously chose to pivot is is I think restaurants are a really unique industry in that we have really positive cash flow. So that's one of the positives of being in restaurants. We provide a service and we receive the money. Um, on the spot. I think for a lot of businesses who were working, the, the margins in hospitality are so tight. The reality is the money that you're earning today is going to pay, obviously, your payroll for that week, but is going to pay suppliers that you have on, say, a four or six week terms. So you're constantly paying behind. So what happens when you suddenly stop and all it all stops and it comes to a screeching halt and all the revenue goes to zero and literally zero within 24 hours, I think then for a lot of businesses the reality was, do you know what, we actually don't have enough to pay our bills. And I think it was a huge wake-up call for the industry of we, you can't just live week to week or four weeks behind. Um, and look, I think in order to survive this period, you had to be in a strong position when COVID hit. Um I think we were very lucky in that we're in a strong position. Um, we've always been very, we've always been very focused on the business side of things. I don't think you can have a business, uh, uh, I guess, even a restaurant itself that can survive this long without being very strong um, on the business side. It's 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 just not possible. So you know, it's where my husband and I we make a great team. He's incredibly creative and he's a great visionary and. I like to think some of that is rubbed off on me, but I'm also very, I'm also very practical, and I'm very driven, and I'm very hard nosed when it comes to business. Um, so we make a very good team um, in that respect. So, having said that, even going into that time in a strong position, that panic of when Scott Morrison was coming on the television and really talking about it being a minimum of six months. That's really what he was saying. Six months is the minimum. When I did the calculations, I was looking at Marco going, we can't make it through six months. I can't pay six months rent. I can't pay all the staff for six months. I can't pay our bills. Like we can't, we just physically cannot do it for six months. And what what I worked out was is the only way that we could survive is if we put everything into freeze um, looked after the staff, looked after our suppliers, because at the end of the day, there were there are they are our obligations that we had to pay, and everything else we pushed off. We pushed off mortgage, we pushed off school fees, um, rent, everything that we could that was huge expenses, and then we just had to work out. And I worked out that if we just paid those things, we could make it through six months. Um, how it would look the other side is is something else. But at that point, sometimes I've learned over the years, you can't get too far ahead of yourself. So I just, I just really worked out what we could do um, in that six month period. I mean, obviously, then, you know, support did come along in regards to some ATO credits, and then JobKeeper, which was absolutely fantastic, because it meant that I could keep some more staff on. Um, We also thankfully had a very good relationship with our bank. So we were able to access the SEM loan. So what that meant was, is out of the 30-odd staff that we had, we were able to pay all of their leave entitlements. And to be honest, with that many staff, it was a big chunk. It was over $100,000 over that period. Um, we paid all the staff their leave entitlements. So all the holiday pay got cleared and we were able to pay all of our suppliers, which was something that we felt really strongly about. 
How did you feel personally at that time? It was a you know a restaurant, as you say, it was in its tenth year. How did you feel about everything that you'd built at that stage? I mean, goodness, I wouldn't even know sort of where to start really on our journey and everything that we have um, gone through to get to this point. Um, I even get emotional actually just thinking about it because the um, yeah, it's I think it's very hard for. Um, some because I know that there's obviously that perception. I think people would come down to Barangaroo and see our beautiful restaurant there, and you know I'm very proud of um, what we have achieved. But it certainly hasn't been easy, and it certainly has not been um, without huge sacrifice. So I think to be in that position where um, you know I'm 46, my husband is 53. We made the choices we made along the way because we knew we had to. We knew we had to make those choices to get to where we needed to be. Um, everything we had, 20 years was wrapped up in those four walls. So to pack it all up and lock the door and not really know whether or not we could come back to that when everything sat inside those walls um, was was a very um, was very hard. You know, we have raised... You know, we started our business in 2000. I think we had $300 when we started our business. And, you know, we opened Barangaroo without any partners. Um, we did it all ourselves. And we've really had to push ourselves all the way along. And we've raised two children and it hasn't been easy. And the children have missed out. Um, the children have missed out on the lot a lot. And we've had to make a lot of sacrifices, but that's the choice we made. And we we're very clear in where we um where we wanted to be and we have really been a, a true partnership I think in that in regards to relationship and life but I think what's what's really difficult is I really Mark and I were both brought up to believe that if you work hard enough at something and that you're smart and that ultimately if you're relentless and we've had to be relentless um, that you can succeed so I think to be faced with the loss of everything we had even though there was nothing, we had done nothing wrong or there was nothing we could do was actually devastating. So I think until those first few weeks where we kind of got a handle on it and thought, do you know what, maybe this will be okay, those first few weeks were, yeah, they were very difficult. We've What's interesting is we've been through something similar before but with health issues in 2014 where we've been in in that and I don't know whether that really I think helped us I don't know whether that sort of really helped us get through that those particular few weeks that were really difficult because we've been in a similar situation before even though obviously quite different um but yeah it, I think it just made us I just think it made us more determined um and more resilient to be honest I just think it's one of those where at one point we looked at them and thought you know what it's shit. We've been thrown shit before and we'll just make it through. We don't have any choice. I think that's the difference, like the the walking away thing. Like we, we can't start again. At our age, we could not, we couldn't start again. Um, it almost broke us the first time. So, <laughs> so to walk away and start again is just not an option. So for us, it was just very much like, okay, well, we've just got to ride it out. We've got to make it work until we can reopen our doors and we'll just have to make it okay. Well, a little earlier you mentioned about some of the really big decisions that you've made along the way in the last 10 years with Love Fish. And um, it, as you mentioned, it was a small restaurant in Roselle at one stage and you made a big move to Barangaroo. Can you tell us about the early days and when you were that hub of the community and, and why you ended up in Barangaroo? Yes, of course. Um, so as I said, we started our business in 2000. We were determined to go out on our own even though we didn't have any money. So it was the year we, we hadn't gotten married. So we decided that we were going to go into consulting. And back then um, pubs, pub restaurants were having a big um, resurgence because, of course, it was becoming quite important to have very good restaurants in pubs. Um, to sort of get that portion of the pokey market. It was really the surge of the pubs. So that's how we started really. Um, Michael and I would approach pubs and say, look, because they had no idea how to run restaurants, let us take over your kitchen. Michael would go in, hire the staff, we'd do the menus, um, we'd take over the payroll. They were happy not to have the headache and um, put in great food so that punters would come in um, and it would give them that competitive edge. So that's sort of how we started 
when we moved actually into contract catering, we ended up doing the catering for the Sydney Swans Club, actually, of all things, for a number of years. And I think that's really where we also got to hone our business um, our business skills. So my husband's a very talented chef and did a lot of fine dining before we got married, but we had sort of moved into, um, like I say, some functions that we did, you know, three, 400 people, and you really have to know what you're doing. Your margins are razor thin. And in many respects, even though it was very difficult for us, and I think that's really when we started that, that's when the 24-7 aspect of our lives really began. I think at one point we did six years without a day off and without a holiday. It was it was just relentless. It was just never-ending and, um, and difficult. And it definitely chips away at you, but um, that's what we did, you know, heads down. We just did it. And then um, we'd had, we obviously had two small children. We were ships in the night as we usually are. And, and, um, the opportunity, Roselle was our local neighborhood and then 2010. So we'd done this sort of for 10 years, 2010 came along and, um, a little restaurant that had been a bit of a fish institution in the area, um, but was quite sort of run down, came up for sale. And we both sort of looked at each other. We had young kids and we really wanted to move away from what we were doing. And, um, and in fairness to Michael, it was really him um, that really pushed for this. I think he had the vision for it. And I was just like, you've got to be crazy. Uh, opening a restaurant, we've got two small kids. Like everyone always says, don't open a restaurant. Um, and, yeah, so we did it. And as it usually is, we're sort of all in. Um, <laughs> that's sort of where the madness began. So I think Eva was only about 18 months old at the time. So Max must have been about. Um, just uh, maybe just under four, three and a half, and then we had Eva. And, um, look, I think we had a very clear idea. Um, we, I think we had a very clear idea of what we wanted. I think we could see the dining trends um, shifting and, and changing. Um, I think we could see that people wanted to dine out more often but sort of wanted an affordable price point. I think people are, I, 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 just like anything when you have an idea, I think it's really based too on what you personally are looking for. So I was really looking, I guess, at ethical eating. Um, I wanted to know where my where my food was from. We loved eating at restaurants like Pier on special occasions where I could sit down and enjoy Humpty Doo Barramundi that had been flown down from the Northern Territory. Um, and it was like, okay, what, what do we love? Um, so I think it's... A, it's really seeing a gap in the market and then finding something that you're passionate about. So for us, I think it was really taking sort of iconic Australian seafood back from the special occasion and going, right, how can we make this an everyday food item? Um, at the moment, your options are fish and chip shop where you have no idea where your seafood is from. Over 80% of seafood we consume in Australia is imported. You've got no idea what you're consuming or you've got a really, really lovely seafood restaurant that for many people um, really is a special occasion occurrence because of the price point. So we were like, how do we bring it back to the everyday? And the only way to really do it was take the same produce that the high-end restaurants use but serve it in a really, really, really simple way so that the you don't need a hundred chefs to be able to produce the food and serve it in a casual, in a casual local setting. And that's exactly what we did. So um, we sourced the same seafood that the high-end restaurants were using, but we literally served a fillet um, on a plate with lemon. Um, and at the time, again, the groundswell was there for a lot of dietaries, whether it be gluten-free, dairy-free. And when I put together a menu, Marco was like, this is crazy. The menu's so huge. You can't do a menu in a small restaurant like that if we're only going to have two or three chefs cooking. So we thought, okay, what about a mix and a match? What about you come in and you choose your seafood, but then you choose your side and we have 12, 14 sides, all of which have different dietary needs, and then you can mix and match how you do it. And, do you know, I still remember, I mean, we looked at it and we were like, yeah, we would love to eat somewhere like that. But I still remember just, I think, that fear. And, of course, in my typical fashion, our small little fit out of this restaurant turned into an Anthony Gill extravaganza. <laughs> that, and that was actually, I think it was, I can't remember, I think it was pre-Esther. 
days. I think he'd just done Vini. He'd done Berta. He'd done Vini and Berta. And, um, you know, of course, it turned out being this beautiful curved concrete ceiling and curved marble fish scale bar. And, of course, it was stunning. But I remember opening those doors up to our hock and debt and just thinking to myself, good God, what if no one gets it? Because in many ways, it wasn't really being done anywhere else. It's not that we were groundbreaking, but sometimes you just have to go out and just do something that other people aren't doing. And, and um, you know, what if someone didn't want to come in and spend $18 on a piece of fish and know that it was from Humpty Doo? Maybe they don't care. Um, maybe only we care. So anyway, I remember inviting all the family down for our opening night so that we wouldn't be empty in case no one came. And I opened the doors and there was a queue down the street and my family wow. turned up and I said, I'm really sorry, I can't see you, there's no room. <laughs> <laughs> and we sent them away and that was really, you know, that was really the beginning. And, um, and look, you know, we embrace the community and vice versa and, do you know, we've been at Barangaroo now for four, we're in our fifth year and I still only last week at Barangaroo had a customer going, we're still so sad you left Um you left Roselle, but but look, there's a there's a few reasons we had to go. Some of which we might get to um, we might get to later. But um, you know, we did in the end, we did eight years, um, eight years at Roselle, and and for the first four years, we did seven days. So again, we did four years, seven days, no days off. Mark and I were in there every day. He cooked, I served, um, and. We lived up. To, we ended up moving upstairs because that's the only way we could raise the kids, um, and you know that's what we did. And um, you know it was it it was incredible. And but I think in order to make, I think in order to have a business that survives like that, you've obviously got to have a very strong concept, but you've got to have really strong. You've got to have really, really strong values. I think you have to have quite an authentic story and I think you've got to not not pretend to be something that you're not. Like I'd, I'd like to think that we didn't pretend to be something that we weren't. We never... We never went out there and said, oh, my God, you know, we're the latest thing, we're the best at this, this is what we do, Michael's this. Or I, I don't think we ever sought that. We just quietly... We just quietly did our thing and I think... If you're if you're not authentic, I think customers see through the, I think they see through the bullshit, and I think that's really been, I think that's really been the key for us, is that we sort of found our place and we stuck to it and we didn't deviate from that no matter I guess what sort of got got thrown at us, and um, we had a formula and you know sort of it really worked, and then we had a little blip in the middle there so. We were going very hard until um, 2014, um, and then I had a um, I had a very sudden cancer diagnosis in 2014. I think Eva was six, Max must have been eight, um, and um, yeah, a world fell apart really. And I think I think what was particularly hard at that point is the realization that here we are, here we were, as you know, restaurateurs with a great little business. And we'd worked very, very hard. Um, but the reality was if we stopped, um, we didn't have anything. And I think that's what's so hard, I think, for business owners. You know, you, you pay your staff super, you do everything you need to do. But meanwhile, you know, you, you don't really have anything for yourself. Everything sort of goes back into the business. And um, I think that was a big wake-up call for us, um, really, in many ways. In a couple of ways. First of all, I think the realisation that, if we removed ourselves from the business at Lovefish, that it's actually not viable to make money on a 45-seat restaurant. That was, I think, the first wake-up call. Um, the second was that we really needed to get a life. Um, that was the second one. So the first thing we did, as anyone does when I think they get that sort of panic, is we grabbed the kids and we ran off to Disneyland. Um, and... And, yeah, I think that was a real pivotal point for us. So we really spent the next sort of couple of years thinking about, you know, once that recovery had taken place and we were back to work, it was then really for us about, okay, we need to, we can't just keep living, you know, a day at a time, month at a time, whatever it might be. You know, we really need to sort of future-proof 
ourselves and and I think just that realization of you know Michael looking at me going good god you I can't of course you know the person that is going through this terrible but for poor Michael being in a situation where you might be left with a business by yourself and two children and no way forward by is just absolutely frightening so um for us, I think it was that realisation of we needed to do something different. So we looked a little bit about moving out of Sydney, maybe, um, you know, having a bit of a uh, tree change, maybe starting again somewhere else. And then at the beginning, um, sort of in early 2016, um, got a call from Lendlease um, inviting us to come over to to Barangaroo and um yeah, and have a look at an opportunity. Um, I have to be honest, we were a bit like, yeah, sure, let's go over. Michael and I were just like, you know, pie in the sky, but let's go and have a look. We'd obviously watched it being built from across the water and thought, you know, but there we are, um, you know, really just the four of us. We'd also just gone on this, this could be the last holiday of a lifetime trip around, you know, California and gone to Disneyland. So we literally didn't have two brass tacks to rub together. And um so anyway, so we went along for the journey and look, we got the whole tour and I have to say the precinct was incredible. Back then it was still, nothing had yet been, um, had been fitted out. So it was, um, it was really back then it was just the pop-ups, I think. I think the pop-ups were done on the waterfront. So some great little pop-ups, but there were none of the fit-outs there. But we went all around and underneath the towers and all the way and then Sam stopped on the waterfront at this massive site and we were expecting to be shown you know this little hole in the wall somewhere but he stopped at this massive site and he's sort of like you know this is it and well you know Michael and I tried to both keep a straight face as, as we looked at each other and um you know and we just said right right okay and we're like oh it's a bit bigger than expected and he's just like look and I just said look Sam I said I think you might have a different idea of you know I guess, how we're resourced. I just don't really think that this is an opportunity as much as we would love to take that we really can. And um, he said, look, don't say no to anything. If it's something you're interested in, send me an email and, you know, let me send the offer and, and we'll, we'll see what happens. So, of course, we went off on the ferry, took the ferry home and had a look at it from the water and had a smile. And look, without going through all the ins and outs, we somehow managed to get to a point where we thought, you know what, it's actually an opportunity that we just cannot turn down. Um, look, I've got to be really honest. We were 18 months post a really life-changing event and we probably weren't in a strong enough place to do it. Um, my family were very as supportive as they are for me creating opportunity. They always have been. Um, I left home at a very young age. They um, they thought it was madness given my current health status. Um, and you know what? There's actually just out the back of Roselle there, there's a little step. Um, there's this little step that you sit on. Of course, they're all from like 18-whatever these places are built. So it's the old Dunny Lane and we're sat on this step. And we had to make the call. So we had to make the decision. Sam's like, right, that's it. You know, we'd done all the negotiating. We couldn't push anyone. He's like, I need to know, you know, by midday or whatever it was. And we both sat on the step. And you know what? We both cried because we didn't want to do it. As in, we were, we were smart enough to know what was ahead of us. And we didn't want to put ourselves through that. Right? We, we had an inkling of what that would be like to open a restaurant of that size just the two of us, and um, but we just knew it was an opportunity that we just could, couldn't turn down. You, how, how do you say no to something like that? And I think the older the, you get too, the more you realise that these doors don't open. They don't open and, you know, when these opportunities come up, you just have to grab them, you have to do it. And in fairness, you know, my husband is a lot more fearless than I am and, um, you know, he makes me feel brave. So... So, yes, so we did it. So we signed on the line. We had no money and no finance at this point, I'll have you know, but we did it anyway. <laughs> and, and, and um, yeah, and there we go. And you know what? God, I don't think we've had one regret. We had 18 months of probably the most difficult 18 months of our life, um, but uh, it's without doubt the most rewarding. It's the most rewarding experience we've ever had. And very incredibly proud of um, of what we achieved. And I think I think 
when the COVID first hit, actually, that's the, it's so funny that the memories that come flooding back. So I remember sitting, so we'd already signed, we were inside the tenancy at Lendlease, but when it's still like an empty shell, so we're sat there. And of course, we couldn't get anyone to lend us any money because we didn't own a house and we had no security. So we had the option of partners to fall back on. So, we, you know, we weren't completely mental. Um, but, you know, we, we, had that, we had that option, but we wanted to do it for ourselves. And if, we have to, if you have to do all the work, you know, and what you need is money, you have to do what you have to do to get, your, to get yourself in that, in that point of, of being on your own. So we'd gone to this incredible broker, Mike, who um, was our saviour, really, and he'd managed to get us a meeting with a bank that was not our own because our bank had turned us down. And I remember them, the, the, this business banker and another lady, just these, in hard hats, sat there on these plastic chairs in this tenancy. And she's like, you know, we don't really invest in restaurants. And, you know, she's like, um, and I just remember Michael just looking at her going, you know, and there's me with my business hat on trying to throw all these figures at her and thinking this will this will make her realise, you know, the potential down here. But he just went, look, forget all that. And he just looked at her and he just said, you know, we've never failed at anything that we said we would do. Like I, I sit here and I tell you that I will not let you down, that if it's my last dying breath, I will not let this fail. And... God. And I remember just looking at him thinking, Jesus, where did that come from? And then, and then she looked at him and she said, we don't invest in restaurants. She said, but we do invest in people. And she said, and, um, and, I, and we'd like to invest in you. So that's how we got in. So between, between NAB, who were just incredible, and, um, and Silver Chef, you know, we almost got a million dollars unsecured to get into um, into Barangaroo, which really is quite incredible. And um, that's, I think that was that moment that I flashed back to when we were sat here at home and it had all come crashing down because my heart broke a bit for him because he kept his promise. He'd kept his promise, but he couldn't do anything about this. There was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing he could do to actually make this any, any better. And I think that's the thing, I think, is that that helplessness. And um, I think that's where my heart goes out to those business owners in Melbourne um, at the moment because I can't, I can't even imagine, imagine what they're going through. And um, I think it must be particularly, I mean, look, it's difficult for everyone. I mean, let's, let's get that out there straight away right it's difficult for everyone some people have, have tragically lost their lives everyone has their own story but you can only talk it's not to say that your experience is any better or any worse than anyone else's but you can only speak from your own and have your own story um but i think for those business owners in melbourne who were there's many stories like ours we're not the only you know, we're not the only small family-owned business that have had to make many sacrifices to get to where they need to be and to have someone else in positions where they're still earning their money and they're absolutely fine making decisions for you like that must be, it must be incredibly devastating. So um, because in, and I think that's the hard thing, at the beginning when the whole country was on lockdown, I think there is that feeling that we were all in it together. But I do think that as time progressed, I think that did change. And actually some people were quite okay and other people clearly were not. And I think somewhere along the way there, we've lost sight of those that are not doing okay. Well, that um, gamble and jumping into the Barangaroo site reaped many benefits because Lovefish really blossomed and was highly successful there. What, and you became part of this sort of new wave of seafood in Australia with St. Peter and Cirrus and this um, more of a fascination in seafood and understanding of it. What, what's the situation with the restaurant at the moment and moving forward? So I think, I think what's really important from a, a business perspective, particularly when you're the size of business that we are, is, um, is you – at each phase that we're going through, you need to be a profitable business. So it's not enough for us to go, okay, let's just keep doing everything we're doing now and then 
as it gets busier, you know, sort of great with each, the, the money that can be lost during this process can be huge and devastating. So cash flow, cash flow is key. For anyone listening that perhaps doesn't have a business or is just starting out, cash flow is, is, is absolutely everything. And sometimes you have to be super creative from where you get it from. There are times at Roselle though where I think I was balancing probably eight credit cards and whatever you have to do, not that's a ringing endorsement, isn't it? But I'm just saying sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you know, but it's like when we took on, when we took on Brangaroo, we didn't yet have any finance, but all of a sudden the architecture fees are coming through, the, you know, the, the bank guarantees are coming through, you know, and you have to come up with money sometimes for opportunities um, when you don't necessarily have it. And, you know, being in touch with that side of things and knowing how to get money is really, um, is really, really very important. Anyway, I'm digressing. So um, having a profitable business at each stage is really, really important for you to be able to maintain your cash flow to move forward. Um, and essentially, if you can't pay your staff and your suppliers at any given time, you know, really your business is not profitable. So it's very, very important that you don't find yourself in... Um, you know, in that position. So when we first closed, you know, a lot of businesses were pivoting. So you go through that initial, if you take a couple of weeks and then you look at all the options. And I think there's sometimes that little bit of, am I not doing enough? Is it not right? Um, should I be moving on this? But it didn't matter how I crunched the numbers, I couldn't make it work. I couldn't make a pivot for us to be profitable purely based on where we are. So pickup wasn't an option. The CBD was just empty. And the product that we have, we could not do a delivery option on our product without compromising. And we've worked we've worked 10 years relentlessly. You can't start compromising as a knee-jerk just to get you through a small period. So for us, um, I guess that pivot, if you like, just wasn't just wasn't an option. So we reopened um, We reopened in June and it was just really, I guess, looking at the figures and going, right, what can we do? So Michael's back in the business full-time. And when I mean full-time, full-time for us is every day, um, leading the kitchen. I think he's got kitchen wages down to like 12% or something crazy. And um, I've got my solid front of house team. I was lucky in that my managers were on um, were on JobKeeper, and you just we've reduced our trading hours. Um, and really, that's that's the biggest expense for a business um, like ours. You know, we've got sixteen meters directly on Sydney Harbour, and people, you know, sort of go, oh "My God, your rent, your rent must be crazy." Do you know what? Our wages are four times our rent. Your wages will always be your biggest expense, so it's really about controlling. Um, it's really about controlling the wages, and so for us, it was about reducing, um, reducing how many hours we were open. Barangaroo is quite interesting at the moment in that sort of June, July, the weekends almost felt a little bit more normal. Um, Sydney ciders have been incredible; they've been really supportive, so really coming out on the weekends. But Monday to Friday trade are just just absolutely dead. Um, I think at one point there was less than five percent occupancy in the towers. So, with zero tourists, state borders closed, so no interstate tourists and no um, no office workers. Um, it it was quite frightening. So it was quite strange because you know in the suburb where we live, we might go out or wander around the neighbourhood and. It feels quite busy and there's people bustling and people were going about their day. But you you walk into the CBD and um, we actually often walk. It's a 45-minute walk, but we walk from Redfern into um, into work and, um, yeah, it's just empty. There's no one about. So, look, it's starting to, it's starting to pick up again. Um, I think it's going to take us a long time until we get, back to where we were but then you know we were seven days seven nights full pelt with you know peak times having 40 staff so in many ways when you look at the bottom line you might only be doing 50% of your usual trade for that given month but if you have reduced rent reduced overheads your wages are half you know you go through all those things it, it's it's okay it's okay you've just got to make the numbers work
as for what's coming next, um, it's a it's a very good question. We've obviously got the casino opening. Um, I've always seen that as a really as a really positive, um, really positive thing for the area. Um, I think instead of um, you know sort of where we were, where Cirrus was, it's sort of that dead end. It's kind of stops from there, um, and now all of a sudden we're not a dead end any, anymore. We're a walk through to this incredible new Harbour Cove and stunning architectural building and. You know, of course, the having all these tourists and influx and visitors coming down to see these new precinct, obviously we're not going to have that. So I think it's an interesting landscape in Sydney at the moment because we're all sort of fighting over the same market. We're really fighting over Sydney ciders who come out to dine. So um, I think going forward it's going to be interesting. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens sort of through to Christmas. I think Crown's launching in... Um, in December, but but long term, I, I do feel like it's it's an incredibly positive thing for the area. How are you feeling personally after this period of time? And has there been positives to come out of this experience? Look, I definitely think there's you know there's there's always I think positives to come out of um I think to come out of all experiences. Um, you know, we got to spend time together the four of us kids were obviously sent home from school and they were homeschooled so for us to have all that time together um was unheard of really so I think once that initial panic sort of went and we were like do you know what maybe we'll be okay um so that was you know that was really lovely um my husband cooking you know doesn't often you know get to cook for his family or I think want to cook I think when you've been cooking all day and you come home it's a bit of a chore but I think I think that joy and having a full bar at work that was a that was a definite joy um we would we would drive in I don't think we went to a supermarket in three months we would just drive in grab some stuff out the freezer grab a bottle off the shelf and um and then that would do us for you know that would do us for a night or two and look I think I think the positives I think positives were for us is that, look, usually being a hospitality business owner, it's a very isolating experience. Funnily enough, Barangaroo, I think everyone before, before it opened always sort of, I think, labelled Barangaroo, I think, is it like anti-community. I think there was just that feel about it. I think the irony is, is that actually I found an incredible supportive um, community down there. Perhaps that's got something to do with, I guess, the choice of tenancies, um, you know, the family sort of own business. But I have some incredible friends and support networks down there. Um, so we were really supportive of each other during that. I'm also part of a, a female restaurateur group. So we have a WhatsApp um, chat. And funnily enough, at the time of COVID, we were also going through a City of C uh, Sydney retail program run by Investable. And actually, I think you spoke to the trolley guys, so they were part of that program at that time too. So I had about three WhatsApp sort of groups going and I think it was just it was just a bunch of such incredible supportive humans during that time. So I found during those first few weeks also that supporting other people that perhaps didn't have the resources that we had was also incredibly comforting. It kept my brain busy and it didn't let me get too swept up in the angst of everything that was happening. So I think feeling like we were part of a big community um, was really positive. So that's definitely a positive to come out of COVID. I think it was an opportunity too for us to rebuild the team. Um, God, without getting into it too much, but when you've got a team of 40 people, I mean, it's like, honestly in hospital, it's a constant scramble to try and find the right staff um the right staff that's the right fit um when uh, when it's just so difficult to find staff full stop um so i think to be able i think to rebuild the team and really get back to those that are as passionate about the business as we are and then we can go back to sort of our core values um, and really what the business is all about has been really lovely as well. Instead of, you know, when, when you're going hell for leather, 
seven day, you know, literally seven lunches, seven dinners, seven days a week, all year round, we would just close Christmas Day. If there's changes or things you wanted to implement, it's almost impossible because you can't stop. The wheels are going. You can't just stop and change a tyre. It's just not how it works. So I think to have that time to update and look at processes, look at systems and go, do you know, we could definitely do this better. Um, and look, our biggest challenge, people say to me, what was your biggest challenge for moving to a restaurant that did, you know, what do we used to do? Say 1.2 a year. I think that that's first eight, whatever it was at Brangaroo that first year was like 6 million, right? Crazy numbers. And it was just how do we, our success was our authenticity and our key values and the fact that we served every single guest that walked through our door. How on earth do you replicate that on such a big scale? And that was always, I think, our biggest challenge. How do you still make a place feel warm and inviting when it's so big? How do you, how, I think there's an assumption that when people come to restaurants like that, that it's just a churn and burn, that it's just, you know, a big group that might own that restaurant. Um, so it's how do you instill those, those values? And essentially, it, you know, it comes down to people. Um, it comes down to having people that you love and that represent what you love, I guess, there to represent that to, um, yeah, to the guest. So, um, so yeah, so that's been a really lovely opportunity. And it look, and it's made, I have to be honest, it's really also made me appreciate um, my core staff even more. You know, I've got an incredible management team and they've been supportive in the business and in a personal way and, you know, bless them, I'd be absolutely lost, um, lost without them. And, you know, that's really been the same throughout our, our whole journey. So as much as we might say, you know, we sacrificed this and this is the hard work we did and we never gave up and like essentially other people have carried us through this journey and our incredible staff for, you know, 10 years have carried us to where we are now and, um, yeah, so a big clap on the back is is due for them and also a big thank you from us for helping us get to where we are. Well, Michelle, you and Michael, what you've done for seafood in this country is extraordinary and we're honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Uh, please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Lovely. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>